Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast with interviews conducted by KPFA theater critic Richard Walensky and associate theater critic C.S. Sung and reviews that aired on KPFA's Arts Waves and Upfront programs. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. Tony Kushner is one of America's greatest playwrights, and Angels in America is certainly one of the greatest American plays of the 20th century. I had two opportunities to interview Tony Kushner, both of which are heard in this podcast. The first was in 2006, when he was in San Francisco promoting the Library of America's edition of the collected plays of Arthur Miller, for which he'd written an introduction. The second time was in a live on-air phone conversation in 2014, in which he discussed his newest play, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with the Key to the Scriptures, which had just begun a run at Berkeley Rep. Along with the two aforementioned plays, Tony Kushner is also the author of several other plays, including A Bright Room for Day, Slobs, Homebody, Kabul, and the musical Caroline or Change. Among his work as screenwriter was an adaptation of August Wilson's play Fences, plus original screenplays for both Munich and Lincoln, both of which earned him Oscar nominations, along with the HBO adaptation of Angels in America, and coming up, the screenplay for Steven Spielberg's film of West Side Story due at the end of 2020, and after that, another Spielberg film, the kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. Angels in America brought AIDS to the surface, I think, in a way that virtually nothing else did. And I think the parts of Munich that are clearly Tony Kushner, and I'm thinking specifically the conversation on the staircase, brings out a Palestinian point of view that we don't see here in America. So the question comes, what can the artists do and how fast can the artists do it? I'm not sure what you mean when you say how fast. How long does it take to put a a play together, for instance? It takes years. It took how many years to do Angels? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I worked on Angels for about eight eight years. I mean, it was already, you know, part one had already opened by the time, you know, when I was still working on part two. But when you say art, it's hard to know what you mean. It takes very little time to put together a piece of agitprop theater or to make a poster and wheat paste it on a wall. It takes a very long time to write a long, serious play, or at least it takes me a fairly long time. So I don't think that art is necessarily at its most useful as a means of sort of rapid response. I think that when situations demand a rapid response, what they really demand is activism. And there are all sorts of ancillary things like, you know, protest art that can help fuel and and shape activist response. But really, finally, what matters during a time of crisis is that people do things, that they organize, that they call their Congress people, that they call the White House, that they march, that they demonstrate, if necessary, that they engage in nonviolent civil disobedience. I mean, that's what really is demanded of citizens at a time of crisis. And I think in a number of ways, we're at a time of crisis right now. I think that otherwise, you know, art is a a slower and more contemplative process, and it requires uh, a certain amount of quiet and maybe even a certain amount of distance. Angels in America is a play about the AIDS epidemic, but it was written in 88, 89, 90, and on and on. So it wasn't written in the heart of, I mean, it's what makes something like The Normal Heart, Larry Kramer's play, so astonishing is that it was actually written, you know, at the absolute sort of the most terrible moment among early moments of the epidemic, and that he had the the vision and the immensity of spirit to come up with a play as powerful as The Normal Heart in the middle of that is to me hugely impressive. I can't do stuff like that. I need to be, among other things, a little bit calmer and a little bit less angry before I think I can do my best work. And so I don't usually write. I mean, occasionally I wrote a play about Laura Bush that was published in The Nation uh, that was written right at the beginning, in the process of building up to the war. And it was written in a moment of anger. But for the most part, if it's a big, serious play, 
there's a, a part of myself that can't become articulate if it's too strangled by rage. And that's just who I am. I mean, that's just a temperamental affliction. After Angels in America, you did a play called Homebody Kabul. Act one is an hour-long monologue, followed by a search for the woman doing the monologue in Act two. When you wrote the monologue, did you have any idea you were going to write Act two? No. I had I had no idea. The monologue was written as a favor for a friend who wanted uh, Kika Markham, a wonderful British actress, who wanted to uh, uh, do a, a sort of one-person performance piece. And she said I could write about anything I wanted to write about um, as long as I wrote it for her. And I love her work, and so I wrote the monologue basically because I wanted to, to do something for Kika and also because uh, I wanted to write about Afghanistan. This was in 1997, and I, I was thinking about Afghanistan a lot, and so I wrote the monologue, and I didn't know when I first wrote it. I thought it was just, I couldn't tell what the hell this woman was talking about. I could tell that something was going on. There was something really um, compelling to me about the, I wrote it very quickly. It was basically like two days, part of it on an airplane. And when I finished it, I and, and Kika read it back to me, I thought, okay, there's definitely something here, and and we watched it in front of an audience, and audiences were really held by it in a way that made it absolutely clear that something was going on, but I honestly didn't know what it was. It didn't end well back then. I, I thought, okay, I'm, and the problem with the ending of it is that I don't know exactly where what she's doing. I mean, the thing that you have to be able to tell an actor when you write something for stage is, what is your character trying to do what's the action that's being played here they can talk and talk and talk and talk and not move from a chair which is the case with the monologue but talking is a form of action and what are they after i never knew what to tell kika when i wrote the monologue i had no idea what this woman wanted and then i started to think okay i need to do something else here i don't know what it is but this is not entirely complete in and of itself although i think in dublin it was performed as a play just the monologue by itself and did quite well I began to understand that the woman was about to leave and that she was trying to explain a decision. And then I realized that the decision that she was trying to explain was a decision to leave her safe little kitchen and go to Kabul in 1997. And that she was explaining the decision. There were weird things like she had a husband and a daughter who just appeared when I was writing the monologue. And I realized that they were part of this decision that she was making. And that's where the, uh, in a sense, the rest of the play uh, was an attempt to understand the monologue. I know that when novelists write, they do huge amounts of research. In this play, and certainly in Angels, you had to know all about the Mormon world, as well as the world of Roy Cohn, Ethel Rosenberg, in order to get into these characters. In Homebody Kabul, you had to know about Afghanistan. What kind of research do you do for your plays? And you think it's the same kind that a novelist does? I would imagine. I mean, I'm not a novelist, but I would imagine it's very largely the same. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of art is about doing your homework and um, not cheating. <laughs> Brecht sort of warns people that it's, you know, possible to sound expert on about it, just about anything. Well, that's what we see among right-wing pundits. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, yeah, all you have to do is, is sort of say the right three or four words, and you can suddenly sound like you're, spe you're, you're using shorthand to stand in for a vast body of expertise. And, you know, it can become pretty clear with a lot of these right-wing pundits that they don't know what the hell they're talking about half the time. And also true for playwrights. And in a way, it's what Brett calls a meaning effect. It sounds like there's something deeper there. And you have to sort of bust yourself on those. But there's certainly, in terms of creating a, a, a plausible alternative reality, a plausible universe where there are people that sort of flesh and blood, people are people that seem to be flesh and blood who can stand up and walk around, you have to be willing to uh, immerse yourself I, I think, you know, fairly intensely, at least with the kind of stuff that I write, if I'm going to write, I mean, Homebody Cobble was hard because there are no American characters. There are Afghan characters and, and British characters. So I had to really dig in much more, in, in a sense, to the Afghan characters than to the Brits, although the Brits are not very much like Americans. So it was it was difficult on both counts. Some things like Carolina Change, my musical, is semi-autobiographical. So the research was less. It wasn't nothing. I mean, I did. I was eight years old in 1963, so I had to go back and read about 1963 to sort of remember some of the details that I'd forgotten. And that research definitely informed the play. But uh, with a play like Homebody Cobble or Angels, usually there's about a year of, of digging around before I feel really comfortable to start writing. You kind of put yourself 
into that character as you're writing that character? Is that how it works? You know, I mean, at first it's sort of arbitrary and you don't really believe in the character and you've kind of made up this person, you've made up a name. I mean, it's nice being, I think one thing that must be easier about being a playwright than a novelist is that novelists have to do all the work themselves. The character will only be what the novelist creates, whereas the playwright is aware of the fact that you're writing not a character but a role and that the role can be, to a certain extent, slightly nonspecific because it's going to be taken over by an actor whose job it is to flesh it out and to make it stand up and walk around. And also, playwrights can write parts for specific actors, which I do. I mean, I have the whole thing cast in my head. And so when I was working on Carolina Change, I actually didn't know, because I don't know musical theater very much, so I didn't know these actors. But once we cast Tanya Pinkins in the lead... After that, all the rewriting was definitely done with that body and that face and that voice in my head. And that helps that a certain amount of the lifting is, is done for you. I usually find that if the play has any validity at all, about a month or two into the, the writing of it, the characters begin to develop something that feels sort of creepily like they have a will of their own. They're just things that they won't do. They're th you may have in your outline that the character, you know, picks up a fruit bowl and throws it at her husband. But when you get there, this person may just not be willing to pick up the fruit bowl and something else starts to happen and you can't really entirely control it. They sort of will adhere to your plan for the whole play, but sometimes they really disagree with you and start to go off in their own place. I don't know what that is. I mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think what it is is that people are really enormously complicated inside and contain, as Walt Whitman said, contain multitudes. And one of the great joys of being a writer is that you get to sort of see proof of that in that, you know, suddenly inside of you, it turns out that fairly distinct people who become your eight main characters in a play that you've written and, and they have they seem to have a life of their own. In a screenplay like Munich, if you're working on set, you know the actor, you don't have time to reflect. That's a different process. Well, you always have time. I mean, actually, in film, in a way, you have a weird amount of time because it's kind of an interesting thing because, in a way, it's like being in tech and theater endlessly. I mean, you're just sitting around waiting for them to move the cameras. and to, you know. So there's a lot of sitting around on a film set. And I'm a fairly slow writer, but I'm a very fast rewriter. So I didn't find the time pressure scary in the sense that if if Steven said, you know, in two days from now, we're shooting this scene, and I don't like the way this happens. And what do you think if that happens? And we did this thing, and it was cool. So what if we do this? Or I've been watching, and I go up to him and say, Steven, you know what, if we blah, blah, blah. That's fun. And I have like two days to do it, which is all the time I need to do anything uh, once I'm rewriting. And I sit there and I write out a scene and show him the laptop, and he looks at it, and we, we move it around. And I really loved doing that. That was great. But the frightening thing about film is then it gets filmed and it's done. I mean, with a scene, you know, there are characters in plays of mine that I that I still don't think anybody's ever actually gotten. Or a character like Joe in Angels in America. I had to wait a very long time before I thought somebody really completely nailed that character. Who do you think did? I think finally, ultimately, uh, uh, Patrick Wilson really just got it. And maybe in some funny way, it's more of a film character than a stage character. I don't know. Because it, the guy is such a liar. He's so completely a liar, including to himself. I don't know. I thought what well, between Mike and Patrick, they just got this. I mean, I finally thought, oh, that's what I had in my, That's exactly what I had in mind. Which is not, I mean, David Marshall Grant on Broadway was, he was fantastic. Great. I mean, just fantastic performance in it. But it's, uh, it's just, it's a complicated thing. But the, the thing with theater is that, you know, the play will go on. You know, or I've seen people playing Lewis or playing Pryor, or playing Harper, who've walked off. I mean, there, there have been productions that I've seen of Angels in America that completely, without any question, belong to the person playing Harper or belong to the person playing Hannah or Belize. They, that was just like it was the, that was what the play was about because that character and that actor fit together so perfectly. And that's fun. George Wolfe's production of Angels in America was very different than the production here in San Francisco that Mark Wing Davy did. And, and that's fun. It's, it's never finished. It's never done. And film is very different because, you know, you have a scene that you wrote, you're proud of it. The actors do it. If it's like that staircase scene in, in Munich, I'm enormously proud of the scene. I love the two actors in the scene. I thought they did it beautifully. That Stevens filmed it beautifully. But when it was done, I realized, oh, my God, that's over. It's like that scene is now in the can, as they say, and it's a finished thing, which is also frightening because if they didn't get it, if they don't nail it, 
it's gone you know it'll be it'll be this this kind of other version of it that's and that's it's a very different kind of experience munich from my perspective showed the palestinian point of view in a way no american movie has and i think it probably damaged the film's prospects though i think what really damaged the film's prospect was everyone i know said well i have to be in the right mood to see it which i think killed the film but in berkeley they were saying that the palestinian material you wrote was a sop to the Zionists. How do you respond to that? I mean, first of all, I, I, I want to take issue with the idea that the film's prospects were ruined. I mean, the film at this point has grossed well over $100 million worldwide. So it's on its way to maybe not, you know, making back all of its money, but making back enough so that it's not in any way a disaster. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. And I think if you look at how genuinely controversial Munich is, as opposed to a film that's, you know, a very good movie, but not really about something that anybody, you know, at this point, you know, Joe McCarthy, I mean, I, I love Good Night and Good Luck, but I don't know that I would call it necessarily a genuinely dangerous film. I think Munich steps into a controversy that is probably the most inflamed political controversy in the world today and steps into it from a fairly dangerous perspective and says some pretty dangerous things and got people v more upset than with any other film this year. And the fact that given all of that, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay is impressive. And so I consider Munich a complete win. I don't feel that the prospects of it, were, I think what you're saying is also interesting. It's two hours and 40 minutes long. It's really grim. It has more falling action. I told this to Spielberg when we finished. I said, this is going to have the, the longest falling action since Lear. I mean, nothing good happens in this movie. It's all bad from the beginning to the end. And I think that's appropriate to its subject. But I know if I hadn't been involved in it, I would have had to drag myself to see it. It's like, you know, God, this is going to be a hard experience. And people don't necessarily want to see those in movies. So... I think that that made it tough. And then again, given how hard it was for people to watch it, I mean, given what, a, what an unrelentingly tough movie Munich actually is, it made 47 million or whatever domestically and 70 million in Europe and around the world. That's pretty good for a really tough, hard movie. And I'm totally happy, and I think I can speak for Stephen as well. We're both really happy with the, I mean, the way we didn't think we were going to be making, you know, some giant blockbuster hit. I think that the criticism of the film, I mean, what's funny about the criticisms of the film is, I actually sort of would like to do a book about this, that literally anything that anybody has said about it has been, um, you could find the exact opposite said right. about it, which is, again, entirely appropriate to what the thing is about, because that's also true of the Middle East conflict. And, you know, I have a uh, sort of lefty, I mean, I, I was much more, because I'm of the left, because I think the right does much more damage at this point in terms of the politics of the Middle East, I was much angrier in some ways about the right attack. And it was also much more relentless and done in a kind of a, a way that was intended to clearly stop people from seeing the film. But there was a left response to the film that really irritated, that really bugged me. I'm not going to call it anti-Semitic, but the politics of the Middle East is is complicated in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways that it's really complicated is that that um, because of the history of the Jewish people, Israel is a special case, and you can't apply. You know, it's not South Africa. It's not apartheid in South Africa. It's not you know just another instance of colonialism or a, like an illegal occupation. I mean, it is an illegal occupation. What's going on in the West Bank is, is and Gaza is horrible. The way the Palestinian people have been treated is horrible. Israel should be held to account for those things. But the fears that Jewish people have about the survival of the state of Israel are perhaps in some senses exaggerated. I mean, Israel is a nuclear power with the third largest standing army in the world, and it's the, you know, the most beloved client state of the world's largest superpower. But it's a small country. Jews have had to deal with a near successful attempt at genocide. In very recent history, we've been persecuted and oppressed for 2,000 years. And there's good reason for Jewish fears about survival, and they have to be taken seriously and they have to be taken into account. And also the fact of anti-Semitism around the world and the ways in which the Palestinian-Israeli conflict have been used for completely monstrous purposes to fuel anti-Semitism around the world, you know, is something that people have to take very seriously. So it's a Jewish film. 
made by a Jewish director, written by uh, a Jewish writer. It's about a fight within the Jewish community in a certain sense. It was never intended to be a history of the Palestinians. I'm very proud of the extent to which I was able to, uh, and Stephen was able to make it a film in which there was an articulation of, of Palestinian um, aspirations and, and dreams, which I think are recognizable and laudable. It's just as stupid to say that the movie is like completely pro-Israel as it is to say that it's completely pro-Palestinian, as it is to say that anyone's politics in this regard ought to be entirely one thing or the other, because the situation is, I think, a genuinely tragic situation. And that doesn't mean that it's not resolvable, but it means that you can't approach it without understanding that there are two sides, at least two sides, with competing histories of oppression and persecution confronting each other over an overdetermined piece of real estate. And there's, there are no simple pieties, either from the left or the right, that have any place in this discussion. When we were talking about the Oscars, the fact that Munich was nominated was a triumph for the film. The fact that Brokeback Mountain didn't win said something else, I think, uh, particularly when of the five films, the safest one won. Do you agree with that? I don't know about safest or not safe. I mean, I think that I think that Brokeback Mountain, personally feel that Brokeback Mountain should have won for Best Picture. And it would have been a really great thing if it had. But it also, in a certain sense, was an honest reflection of where America is. Things have changed a lot so that it's possible that the most lauded and celebrated film of the year could be a film that's an, uh, absolutely, without any question, a gay movie, a gay love story. That's what Brokeback Mountain is. And... Uh, it's a sign of, of, of incredibly uh, important and incredibly hard-won progress that we've arrived at a place where this film could have the kind of reception it had. But America is not done struggling about uh, lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender issues. There's a lot of progress that still needs to be made. So in a certain sense, there's a fantasy that, you know, it gets the Oscar for Best Picture as a way of sort of saying the fight is over and we've won and everything is great. But of course, anybody who's got their eyes open knows the fight isn't over and we haven't won yet. And in many ways, we're treated very badly in this country and deprived of our rights and disenfranchised and not treated equally under the law and used as a political football by um, really dangerous, oppressive parts of the, of the, of the communities on the right, and, uh, and that we have um, a long way to go. And so in a certain sense, they came almost to the point of saying, you know, it's the best movie of the year and the Oscar, which is a significant thing. I mean, the Oscar's a big deal. The Oscar goes to this movie, and they couldn't quite do it. There's a lot of old guard homophobia in Hollywood, and they, they just couldn't quite hand it to them. And, you know, it made me sad. And it also was like, I mean, I talked to James Seamus, the producer of Brokeback, and he said, you know, I knew that this was what was going to happen. I mean, he said, of course, they're not ready to go all the way with with this film. And, you know, and it shows us, you know, that we're we, there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made. Angels in America came out on HBO. As I watched it, I realized that it was easily the best film of the year. It made me wonder, once the film was finished, could it or should it have come out? in theaters. Actually, a major studio tried to buy it from HBO once it was done. There was a there was a serious offer made to HBO to just cover all of the production costs and to release it theatrically. You know, that'll go down as one of the unknowns. I mean, I have no idea what would have happened to it. I mean, it got it got um, uh, reviews from a lot of serious film critics who said, you know, that they thought it was like one of the best films of the year. And I would love to have seen what would have happened to it. I mean, originally when I worked on it with Robert Altman, we were going to do it um, as a theatrical release. I don't know what would have happened to it in, in theaters. You know, its ratings on HBO, to the extent that you can never figure out what the ratings are on HBO, were, were good, but not like, you know, Desperate Housewives or American Idol. It wasn't like everybody tuned in on that night to see it. A, a lot of people did. More people the first night to see Millennium Approaches than ever saw it in all the theaters that it was produced in, which is kind of chastening. I don't know what would have happened. I mean, it, it plays beautifully on the big screen. I've seen it twice now on a, um, well, HBO did a, the premiere of Millennium at the Ziegfeld. And so it was on a big screen and it was shot on film. I mean, shot by a great film director. So it, it looks great on film. 
I loved having it on television. I love television. I think in a certain sense, television is a medium that more closely approximates the at least one quality of theater, which is that it's all about talking heads. It's all about talk. Television is not really a great medium for giant sort of epic you know, battle scenes and landscapes because it's on a television set. I mean, I think, for instance, that although Brokeback will be very effective on television, there's a certain sort of immensity of those landscapes that you get on screen on a big screen. Whereas I think Munich, which is about very tiny little rooms for the most part, will probably play, you know, fairly well on a television uh, screen. And I think Angels was 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 good on on TV also because of HBO's rather remarkable apparatus of of delivering the goods. You could watch an hour at a time. You could watch three hours. You could watch all six hours sometimes. And they really sort of gave you a way of dealing with the episodic nature of the play in a way that I thought was very interesting. Tony Kushner, here you are working on this collection of Miller, and here you are probably America's preeminent playwright at the present time. What kind of influence does one playwright have on another, particularly since... Both of you function at the nexus of politics and art. I mean, I'm not, I don't think, a particularly Millerian writer, although I think in a way I felt when I was writing Munich that it had a very sort of an Arthur Miller kind of feel to it. For various technical reasons, it became, I think, closer to a kind of a well-made play model than the other stuff that I do, which has much more to do with kind of epic dramaturgy, people like Brecht. And I think a kind of an extravagance of expression that is more in the tradition of, let's say, Tennessee Williams than Miller's work. But since reaching my maturity I, and, and understanding more and more as I try to write plays how hard it is to do it, I've come to appreciate more and more what an extraordinary uh, technician Arthur was. And also um, his concerns and the issues that he addresses and the way that he addresses them move me more and more as I reach middle age. I'm about to turn 50. And I get it more and more what what he was up to and what he, he saw. And my politics probably in a certain sense are, are swimming closer into alignment with his. As an exemplar of somebody who, who struggled with the conflict of being both a writer and a public figure and being um, an artist and an activist at the same time, I mean, Miller is pretty much unbeatable, he, unmatchable. He's both daunting, and I mean, it's a formidable model to take for yourself because he was so impressive, but it's also very inspiring. There's a conflict at the moment in the New York theater community about the cancellation of a play about a, um, a young activist who was killed in Gaza, and it, it involves the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and I was so worn out for, over the conflict with Munich, when this conflict came up, I thought, oh, you know, God, I, I've, I've paid already. I don't want to get back into <laughs> the arena and argue with these people anymore. And then I was getting ready for, you know, going around talking about Arthur. So I was rereading some of his stuff. And I thought, you know, even though I'm tired, I should probably go ahead and jump in because what counts is that you're true to yourself and that you do what you think is the right thing and the honorable thing as opposed to the self-sparing thing. So he's, you know, he's useful in that way. He sort of makes everybody think, okay, when the history book is written, when people consider, you know, who did what during dark times, I want to be in the Arthur Miller column and not, you know, in the, uh, Let's say, for instance, Ilya Kazan column. I mean, I want to be, you know, on the side of the people who stood up for things. Uh, and it's, you know, I think that's one of the use values of, 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 of an artist like Arthur is that he, he stands then as this kind of example for the rest of us to try to emulate. One thing that George Clooney's movie, Good Night and Good Luck, brought up for me was, and I think obviously was deliberate, the relationship between the 1950s and what we're going through now. Miller was convicted of contempt of right, Congress. And the conviction was overturned. That brings up a question. Where are we going now in terms of what we're seeing? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm. it's hard for me to, to put my finger on things. You know, Bush's popularity is down in the toilet. And yet at the same time, we have a continuation, in fact, maybe even an increase of the horrors of the various policies that are being implemented. Yeah, I mean, it's a very frightening time because his popularity is at a nadir, but I mean, and it may sink lower yet, and yet he has three more years in office and a, and the Republican Congress, unless things change in, in 06, the Republican Congress is 
going to continue to provide him cover for every sort of illegal and immoral and monstrously destructive thing that he has planned. And of course, these are very dangerous, scary people. So the more they feel trapped and the more they feel uh, frightened of the dwindling of their popularity, the more likely it is that they're going to start to do increasingly reckless things, like, for instance, possibly attack Iran. So there's much reason to be uh, alarmed and frightened. And, and these are also times where civil liberties and a lot of the protections that have been built up over the last 50, 60 years to protect and refine the notion of civil liberties in this country and jurisprudence in general are under terrible assault as is happening now with the whole question of illegal wiretapping of American citizens, warrantless wiretapping. There's a tremendous sort of shrugging going on, uh, shrugging off of, of the significance of this. It's a time when there's injustice everywhere and no rebellion, and, and, or not enough rebellion, and that's, that's always very frightening. Arthur Miller, Collected Plays, 1944 to 1961, which is published by the Library of America. I would assume they approached you about this? Yeah, I uh, was giving a speech at the Arthur Miller's memorial service after he died in New York, and Mel Gusso, who was a theater critic and a reporter for the New York Times, and someone I knew had originally been the editor of the uh, Miller series for Library of America, and died. So the library called me and asked me if I would take over responsibilities. The first volume was largely finished by the time that I arrived on the scene, and we're now working on the second volume, which is all the plays from 1961 till the time of Arthur's death, and sort of the more difficult of the two volumes, because the, the choices for the first volume were fairly obvious. Really, basically just everything that he wrote up until the point that he wrote the screenplay for The Misfits, which is the last thing in the volume. After that, there's a very long stretch of life with a lot of plays, some of which will make it into the volume and some of which won't. So this is not a absolutely complete collection of his plays. It's a choice. There were many variants, and the choice was made to use an adaptation based on the screenplay of The Misfits rather than the screenplay itself. That, Why was that? That was apparently Arthur's choice. He knew that the volumes were going to be coming out before he died and made the decision. This sort of novelization of the screenplay was something that he had done right after The Misfits came out as a film. Uh, I, I think uh, now that I've done screenwriting myself, I kind of understand it. It's very confusing after the film appears to know what you publish as a screenplay because the relationship of the text of the screenplay to the film is an odd thing. I mean, it's been changed by the actors while they're filming the scenes and then further changed by the process of editing so that what finally appears on screen is not what you wrote. And you then can either sort of basically make the screenplay a transcript of what people will watch or you sort of show that there were things that weren't filmed or that were changed in the filming. And it becomes somewhat peculiar because it's not like working on a play at all. And I think that the novelization is possibly Arthur's solution to that. What would be your solution, say, in dealing with Munich? I don't know yet. We haven't published it in part because I keep staring at it and thinking, well, you know, there's also no tradition. I mean, there are screenplays certainly in print, but they're not read as literature. They're not written to be read as literature either. I mean, when you're writing a play, you're acutely aware of the fact that you're you're uh, not only preparing a sort of a score for a kinetic event, but you're also dealing with a literary form that has a, you know, some of the greatest works of literature have been, you know, plays. So you're, you're dealing with something that's going to have a, a life on the library shelf and in classrooms as well as on stage. That's not really the case with a screenplay. It's far more utilitarian. I mean, you're, you're sort of writing. I mean, I did a lot of work on the screenplay of Munich on set, sitting in a little canvas back chair behind Spielberg, typing away. And I, at some point, just stopped thinking about the shape of the whole text and just began, you know, dealing with sort of a moment by moment questions that we were trying to solve. Well, even beyond that, by the time it goes into the editing room, I, I, I've talked to actors and directors. They don't know what they've got until they're looking at the rushes and can figure out what's there anyway. So your best work could wind up on the cutting room floor anyway. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't feel that about Munich. I think the things that I'm proudest of in the script are absolutely there in the film. And Stephen is different than a lot of other directors in that, I mean, he doesn't show rushes to actors uh, and he actually has a Michael Kahn, his editor, who's edited everything, I think, since Jaws, is in a trailer nearby. And after every day's shooting, Stephen goes into the trailer and whatever's come back from the lab gets edited on the spot. 
one of the things that people I think didn't make take sufficient notice of is the fact that that we started filming Munich in at the end of June and it was released in December, which is a very I mean we finished filming in October. So I mean the the and he also did War of the Worlds in the same year. He isn't a director who just shoots and shoots and shoots and shoots and then at the end of that goes into an editing room for a year and a half and plays with pieces of film. He really knows what the film is going to look like in his head. I think it's it's eerie the extent to which his mind is sort of organized like a film and he can really sort of shoot exactly what he's going to need. I mean, in a sense, he's editing it as he's shooting it. A few more questions about Miller. When did you meet him? The first time I saw him was at uh, the Tony Awards in 1994 when Broken Glass and the second part of Angel's Perestroika were both nominated for Best Play, and I was seated right behind him and spent the whole evening staring at the back of his head, <laughs> thinking, oh my God, this is Arthur Miller's head. And then I met him several times subsequently. I interviewed him on stage a couple of times, presented him with awards. And when I was doing my anthology, Wrestling with Zion, which is a collection of progressive Jewish-American essays on uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I called him up and asked him if he would contribute to the volume, which he did. So we sort of knew each other a little bit and uh, over the course of about the last 10 years of his life. Carolina Change is your most recent work. You've got a couple of, um, you've got one thing you did with Maurice Sendak. Brenda Barr. That was mostly a translation? Entirely a translation. It was, uh, um, it's an opera that was written for children that was first performed in Terrorism Concentration Camp and um, is a uh, fantastic children's opera. Maurice and I did a book based on the opera and then I did uh, a libretto and it's, it's now about to open in New York. What are you working on now? You, you're working on another massive play that we can always look forward I am, to? I am working on a, on a really huge thing. Um, uh, it's a, a gay, it's my first uh, sort of officially sort of gay play since Angels. And uh, I mean, officially gay. I don't know what that means. But my, a lot, most of the characters or a lot of the characters are gay. So it'll be that. It'll take a while to finish it. And I'm working on a new musical with Janine Tesori, who wrote uh, Carolina Change. I'm doing a Mother Courage, a, a translation of Mother Courage and Her Children uh, by Bertolt Brecht with Meryl Streep in the park this summer. And uh, George C. Wolfe is directing that. And I'm finishing up a screenplay about Eugene O'Neill's suicide attempt. So those are things that I'm working on. The preceding interview with Tony Kushner was recorded in his hotel room in San Francisco on March 17, 2006. Coming up now, the second interview with Tony Kushner, which was recorded live by phone on KPFA's air on the Open Book Program on June 11, 2014, for The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures, IHO is what they called it, which was playing at Berkeley Rep. Uh, I'm Richard Walensky. My guest calling from New York is Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner is uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Angels in America. He's also a screenwriter for both Lincoln and Munich, uh, author of several other works, the most recent of which is The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with a Key to the Scriptures, otherwise known as IHO, which is playing at Berkeley Rep through June 29th, and we're live on the air. Tony, you there? Yes, hi. Hi. Great talking with you. Let me start by asking about the origins of IHO. It's the story of a retired longshoreman, a leftist retired longshoreman, and his, his three members of his family. And I guess it's your big family play. Where, where, uh, going back a bit, um, what prompted you to focus in on Gus and his family? What, what got you started on the story of IHO? Um, well, he's, I mean, he's not just a leftist. He's actually a member of the CPUSA. He's a communist. And, uh, he's a member of an Italian American family in Brooklyn that has a long, uh, radical left tradition going back to, um, anarchism at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so he's, uh, he's, uh, the, um, uh, he's, he's in the family business in a way of, of, um, being, um, directly involved in, in sort of radical and revolutionary political activity. Um, I, uh, I think I was, uh, 
I'm, it's, it's, there are a number of different things that uh, broke the play about. I mean, funding the title, um, uh, which That's I from Shaw, right? from Shaw, yes, and then with a little bit extra borrowed from Mary Baker Eddy and the uh, Guide to Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. So it's Christian Science and Shaw combined. Um, I have been obsessed with this title, with the title of the Shaw book, which is The Intelligent Woman's Guide to uh, Socialism and Capitalism, for many years since I first found the book uh, by Shaw with that title on my grandmother's uh, library shelf. Um, and uh, I decided that I wanted to write a play um, with that as the title before I knew what the play was going to be. Uh, and then I began to think of um, different possibilities. And uh, it was around this time that uh, uh, the Teamsters Local One, the Stagehands Union in New York, was uh, going on strike, and uh, I was surprised to discover in the New York theatrical community a large number of people who were um, sort of, I was surprised, had, were, had become or have always been um, rather vocally anti-union, um, and uh, I got involved in a number of um, heated exchanges with some of my colleagues. Um, about the things that are, uh, as far as I'm concerned, kind of foregone conclusions and, and fundamental assumptions um, that uh, we've uh, made as a civilization about um, people's right to be employed, uh, people not being dispensable um, or disposable, uh, um, people creating wealth by working and consequently having some right to a share in the wealth that they create, and, uh, and you know, just a sort of a fundamental belief and the principle of, of uh, workers' rights to organize, to guarantee, among other things, I mean, a decent wage, but also some kind of job security. And uh, I, I, it made me think a lot about how much has changed in the last uh, 30 years or so since the Reagan revolution, counter-revolution began, uh, which, of course, notoriously began with the destruction of American unions, starting with the uh, air traffic controllers. And... Uh, I I um I thought it was probably an interesting time to start to uh think about uh organized labor and uh its relationship to uh the left and to political radicalism um and uh um I lived for uh 13 years in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn fairly near the Brooklyn waterfront and in an Italian American neighborhood um I've been editing Arthur Miller's plays for Library of America, so I've spent a lot of time reading Arthur Miller's work, and uh, I've always loved uh, View from the Bridge. Um, so all those things sort of came together, I think, and uh, and made me decide uh, that I wanted to write about an Italian-American family living in Brooklyn in some way involved in both um, uh, sort of revolutionary uh, political activity and, and uh, organized labor, and uh, that's sort of where the play originated. And and then you you focus in on the three children, one of whom is uh, a bisexual, mostly lesbian um, woman, who's I believe she's an attorney. I think she's a she's a labor lawyer. Yeah, she, yeah, and um, a gay son and um, kind of right wing carpenter son. And not, not right wing. He's totally. Well, he's uh, kind of liberal. nothing. Yeah, but he's not. I mean, he's, he seems uh, somewhat conservative compared to his the others. Yeah, rest of his family. <laughs> and, and so you begin to to develop them. For I've talked to a number of writers about how they find voices, the voice of the characters. How did you find these? Did, did Gus or did any of the kids just come automatically to you? Uh, what was that process like? Um, no, it's never really automatic. The you know sometimes you write for a specific actor and that helps. Um, the part of Pill, the gay son, uh, was written for Steven Spinella, for whom I wrote the part of Prior Walter in Angels uh, in America, um, and uh, the part of Empty uh, was. Uh, written for Linda Eamond, who uh, sort of created the role of uh, the homebody and homebody cobble in my play about Afghanistan uh, a number of years ago, um, and somebody I uh, love and, and always love working for with. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, you you know a certain actor's voice and, and their strengths and their uh, cadences and, and the ways in which they're funny or sexy on stage, and uh, that helps 
helps shape the character. Um, and sometimes the character sort of emerges from uh, a fragment of uh, um, somebody you noticed on the subway talking. Um, I mean, as I said, I lived in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn for a number of years in, in the apartment building, but I lived in everybody else in the building was uh, Italian-American working class. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time listening to people talking back then, and uh, I've always loved um, that particular kind of uh, uh, dialect and lingo. It's uh, I, I enjoyed living in uh, Carroll Gardens for the time that I lived there. So um, characters sort of assembled themselves from fragments, and you know, I mean, they're they're uh, complicated people. So they're both working class. Uh, at least Gus, the father, is working class, but also somebody who is fluent in Marxist-Leninist. Uh, um, a political uh, doctrine and um, has in the years he's actually been part of a strike in the early 70s uh, uh, in which the ILU, the International Longshoremen's Union in Brooklyn, uh, won for its senior members a guaranteed annual income. So he hasn't had to work much in the last uh, 30 years and he's one of the things that he's done is to teach himself Latin and to start translating Horace, uh, the, poet, the Roman poet Horace. Um, so he's a very um, intelligent and eloquent guy and also a working class guy. And, you know, you start to, as you begin to figure out um, who these people are, you begin to hear what they sound like, the choices of words that we make and the kinds of jokes that we make and the way we sound angry or sad is, of course, entirely determined by um, who we want to be perceived as being, who we actually are, what we're after, and that's sort of the fun of writing a play. Well, the uh, the, the story pivots on his deciding that there's no point in going on. He's going to kill himself, and he calls his children in there. At what point in the development was that kind of like the the trigger that started it all, or did that come later as you after you had the characters? Um, I think there was a an idea from uh, fairly early on in the process of coming up with the play uh, that Gus was suicidal. Um, I didn't sort of realize it until I had written the first draft of the play. Uh, my father, um, who died two years ago, was diagnosed with uh, kidney uh, disease about uh, seven years ago. And um, so when I started working on IHO, which was like two years into his diagnosis, uh, we could tell that, that things were going in a, a bad direction and that we were going to lose him sometime within the next few years. And I think in a way the play anticipates um, the loss of him. He's nothing like Gus. Uh, he did have uh, two sons and a daughter, but none of us are anything like the characters <laughs> right. in, in the play. Um, I'm not even sure that he liked the play all that much when he read it. He, he was a little horrified by some of it, but uh, he, um, uh, I, I think it was a way of dealing with um, you know what was going to be a very difficult loss for me, and uh, sometimes that's what you do when you write. And I didn't know that I was doing it at the time. I, I became interested in the question of um, uh, what suicide would mean to someone who was so future-oriented and so completely communally and community-oriented. And I began reading around and and. Uh, discovered uh, there's a sort of an interesting uh, sub-history of uh, Marxists who um, committed suicide, um, uh, some of them very famous, and there's some very famous um, incidents, including Bolsheviks who did it. And, uh, and, and I became sort of fascinated with, with the contradictions in, in that, and also with a certain kind of consonance that I began to um, imagine might exist between or I was at least curious about whether or not there was a connection between a politics predicated on revolution and uh, the decision to take control of your own life uh, by ending it. Um, and uh, I've been, I think, part of the work on the play, it's been a long uh, time that I've spent on it, um, has been to puzzle my way uh, through that.
when you're when you're doing that I, I know i talk to a number of novelists and sometimes the novel changes the person and sometimes it doesn't for you tony kushner as a playwright do each of these plays change you as you grapple with these issues you think I think they certainly have an effect on me. I, I don't know if they change me necessarily. I mean, you know, certainly Angels in America changed me because it changed right. my, my life in a kind of um, outrageous way. But, uh, you know, you put an enormous amount of yourself into a play, and I tend to work on my plays for several years before there's a first draft, and then I kind of rewrite them and play with them and pull them apart and put them back together again for several years after. Um, Homebody, uh, uh, sorry, Intelligent Homosexual was done first at the Guthrie in 2009, and it's had a production in New York since then, and then this is its third production, and I've been uh, taking it out and playing with it in the time in between those productions. Um, so there's a great deal of you that goes into um, anything uh, that you uh, really create and, and love and are obsessed with. And uh, so uh, the, there was no play like this before, and now there is this play, and it's, so it alters the landscape of your life. Whether or not it fundamentally changed me, I mean, I wouldn't say that it has, um, but, you know, you feel like, okay, so I did that, and I've learned things, I've done things in this play that I couldn't have done 10 years ago that I didn't know how to do, um, and, uh, and that's exciting to me. It's a way of marking changes that have happened in me, um, but I'm not sure that it's really all to me. Maybe the only thing that I've written that really changed the way that I thought in the process of writing it was the Lincoln screenplay, which I worked on uh, for seven years and and it had a, uh, a kind of a ground-shifting effect on my politics. How so? Um, well, I mean, I, uh, because Lincoln was um, uh, a progressive centrist uh, politician um, who had, you know, this um, absolutely... Um, bone marrow deep faith in democracy and uh who um because of his uh absolutely miraculous uh grasp of the machinery of democracy was able to um work within uh the law and within um the parameters of a constitutional uh, uh republic even at a time of horrendous crisis uh, and continue to advance um, uh, human society and, and, and to make progress and to make even a revolutionary transformation, help make a revolutionary transformation in human society. I mean, a terrible cost. But uh, I, I think partly um, just reading as much as I read about Lincoln and also doing the work on the screenplay. Um, I mean, I started in 2005, so it began in the Bush years, in the nightmare of the Bush years. But by 2000, uh, end of 2008, I was, I, I was uh, working on Lincoln during the Obama presidency. And uh, we were out of filming, I think, in 2010, right? So um, that was an incredible blessing for me. I, uh, it was a chance to see uh, a president who, whether or not he's as great as Abraham Lincoln, I don't know, but who is, I think, a very great president and a great politician and a great political leader um, tackling another vast national crisis and, in my opinion, doing a brilliant job um, and I think a, um, a salvational kind of job uh, um, uh, f for the country. Uh, I, 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 it shifted my, my politics. It made me start to ask questions about, um, I mean, I consider myself a person of the left, but I have uh, become increasingly concerned about um, uh, 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 um, a possible comfort that uh, the left in this country has come to feel with powerlessness um, uh, and and the kind of freedom to adhere purely to your political convictions if you actually don't have uh, access to power 
and have to make the kind of compromises necessary to exercise power in a democracy. And uh, so the, the prism of Lincoln um, made me think about things in a rather different way. I think that's an I have. I mean, the big central dialectic uh, uh, in the play is um, between Gus and his daughter, Empty, about the question of evolutionary versus revolutionary uh, uh, change. And... Uh, you know, I don't think this is a simple question, and I hope I haven't presented any kind of simple answers in the play. Uh, but it's uh, it's something that uh, I think Lincoln helped me um, uh, identify and think um, more seriously about. You're listening to an interview with Tony Kushner, whose play, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with the Key to the Scriptures, plays through June 29th at Berkeley Rep in Berkeley. Um you know, when I'm hearing you, my feeling about Obama being on the left is is great disappointment, assuming that I expected anything more from, uh, you know, someone who lives in, you know, a world where he brings in people like Timothy Geithner to control the economics. And then I go back to uh, your play, and I'm thinking about Gus and his decision to commit suicide, and, you know, I... It gives me pause because he wants to kill himself because he doesn't see any forward motion. And his view of what's going on in society is very similar to a lot of people on the left. You know, it's like overwhelming the the economics of Wall Street have, have seemed to have left us dispossessed. Well, you know, I mean, I disagree with you. Um, I mean, I'm sorry that you feel nothing but disappointment. I'm sort of astonished by that, honestly. I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't understand, first of all, the, uh, the short-term memory um, issue, because we've gone through eight years of the most appalling criminal misconduct uh, in a presidential administration that really brought the world, I think, to the brink of, of uh, and maybe over the brink, we don't know yet. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the Bush administration was an absolute catastrophe in every way. And, and, uh, if, if really what you've seen in the last six years of Obama's presidency is nothing but a source of disappointment, I, you know, well, it's probably a longer conversation, but I don't understand it. I don't understand this despair. Um, I, I think Timothy Geithner is certainly somebody um, about whom it's possible to have many uh, negative feelings, but I also think that there was uh, uh, um, an absolutely serious attempt at uh, fiscal reform um, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, within, the, within the givens that uh, a president in... Uh, uh, our country at its at this uh, particular moment in in its historical development um, has to deal with, and uh, I think that you know um, uh, there there's been a, a kind of economic recovery, um, and uh, we have uh, um, a pretty decent shot at uh, we, we have health care reform now. I mean, I th you know. I think he's done some extraordinary things. I think that the new uh, um, uh, keep, it, keep in mind you know, that I would I would vote for him again, but that may have more to do with the fact that you know holding the fort, uh, you know against against the uh, Koch brothers and the extremists on the right, you know and and. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, you're somebody who has access to uh, a public forum, and so, you know, well, I'll vote for him again isn't really, I mean, we may lose the Senate in this next election cycle, and that's a really terrifying thing. We've lost so much time. Uh, I mean, the Congress has become completely paralyzed, not because of Obama or because of you know, Nancy Pelosi or Harry Reid. Whatever you think of uh, people like Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, these are people who are at least committed to the idea of government and of some form form of communal action to address human problems as opposed to the incredible crazy people on the right who have taken control of the Republican Party and are absolutely determined to, uh, you know, bring uh, any semblance of functioning government uh, to a halt. And, and, you know, we've lost 
decades to these people on issues like climate change, we can't afford to, to lose any more time. And that, that it's so important that we express our disappointment and that we, you know, uh, um, say, well, we'll vote for him, but he, you know, Timothy Geithner, and we'll vote for him, but Larry, uh, you know, it's like, okay, but, you know, um, first of all, you know, there have been some extraordinary <laughs> gains in the last, Six years and yeah. and uh, you know a serious commitment to uh, um, lessening uh, uh, climate warming um, gases. I mean, there's 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 uh, much uh, that has been accomplished after 30 years of of shocking misrule, and and you know it doesn't happen overnight. And I I just feel that we're we're so sort of willing to sit back and and kvetch, but you know it's not enough to just say, well, we'll certainly vote for him again, but I mean, we're not helping to build um, uh, 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 you know, the kind of Congress, the kind of federal government that will respond to grassroots demands for a, for a better world, for a more decent world, and if we don't have anyone in, in Congress who can hear us, we're not going to get things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and you know, the Wagner, I mean, those things are not going to happen, and, and I think we've become um, incredibly sort of blasé about sort of shrugging our shoulders about it. So I'm not saying that you, Richard, are shrugging your shoulders, but you know, it's it's a right. it's a great source of frustration uh, I to me. I, I don't understand. I don't understand it. I think it's it's um, we're in so much trouble, and we have to figure out a way to address the the terrible dangers that the whole planet is facing now, and we're not going to do it if we allow these t madmen to continue to control um, at least one-third, arguably two-thirds, of, of the federal government. Um, it's it's got to, we've got to turn it around. And, Tony... Yeah. Uh, Tony Kushner, in, in that in that regard, I, you know, I, I, I want to talk about uh, theater, but um, you you did make a comment um, that I read in an interview. You said there's a kind of optimism in Angels in America that is a lot harder to come by these days, and mm -hmm. it seems to me from from what you're talking about, you know, I, I buy that comment, right? I'm feeling that way. I'm not feeling Gus like because you know. You know, I'm not feeling that way, but I know a lot of people who are. And, and you know, it's great to hear somebody say, well, let's be optimistic. But I think when you create a character like Gus and you yourself say it's harder to be optimistic as we grow older and we see what's going on, you know, it's it's difficult. I think one of the things that theater does, though, is it allows us in and maybe you can comment on this, to explore these issues in ways that even an interview or a documentary or even a film can't do. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, I I, I think that when I made that um, remark to the interviewer about uh, the difference between angels and IHO in terms of um, optimism and pessimism, you know, I mean, when I wrote Angels in 1988, I remember thinking when I started putting in all this stuff about the ozone layer, uh, it, it felt to me, I, I thought, well, what if, what if this is actually proven to be, you know, nonsense? I'm going to have written this play that everybody's going to roll their eyes at because, you know, what if there really isn't any kind of danger to the environment? And what if I'm just, you know, believing the wrong people? Because it seemed uh, even then in 1988, Somewhat, you know, far-fetched. Um, but I had read enough to believe that it probably wasn't, and that I should, you know, include it in the play and write about it. And of course, lamentably, um, it, it turned out to be, you know, pretty much on the money. Um, the and so now, when you listen to Angels in 2014, you you hear the climate change stuff in the play. It, it, uh, it used to be sort of a minor. A chord sounding sort of uh, in the background. It's now uh, actually painful to listen to, I think. Um, and and there has never been anything that the human race has faced, including the nu nuclear prol proliferation, as um, terrifying as what we're facing uh, in terms of uh, you know the the ecocide that we're committing. And and 
it, it is completely paralyzing, and paralysis produces despair and and asks us to question whether or not it's even worth it being alive. I've always felt that obli- that um, uh, you know, sort of hope is not uh, a feeling state; it's a choice, and it's in its way a moral obligation. That if you have the possibility of hoping, you have to examine your circumstances and look around for um, plausible uh, occasions when hope might arise. Um, that's one of the things that your privileges buy you is the uh, ability, the opportunity, the breathing space to do that. And, and you know, sometimes it's very hard to discern um, plausible occasions for hope, but um, rarely absolutely entirely impossible. And, and uh, I'm not saying lie to yourself. I mean, you have to make it what Ernst Bloch called, you know, concrete knowing hope, hope that you've really passed through a very strong set of tests. Um, I hope that actually means something. But I think that, you know, that's our job. That's what we're uh, meant to do. I, I think that, you know, interviews, essays, films, theater, all of these things can, um, can produce that. 